3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respects to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Hello, hello. Welcome to Thursday Breakfast 3CR. It is currently 7 o'clock and we have Priya. No, we have me. And there's Leela in the studio. I meant to say Priya and Spike are away. How are you, Leela? Good morning, Inez. I'm really happy to be here. Um, but yeah, missing Priya and Spike, the newest member of our show. Yeah. Which is really exciting. We're going to hear a really cool interview from them, really important interview. Um, just before the mics came on, me and Leela, I just kept talking about how things were cool and groovy. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's the vibe. Maybe slightly disassociated. <laughs> maybe, um, <laughs> maybe the flavor of the month is a bit of burnout, but, um, contented at, burnout. Yes, Hopefully. absolutely contented burnout. So as usual, we have a pretty big show, so maybe we'll have a little rundown of what we're going through, Leela. Yeah, so first up, we'll hear a conversation from Saturday the 15th of July between Annie McLaughlin of 3CR's Solidarity Breakfast Show and Lara Week, a resident at Techno Park Drive, Williamstown, who talks about how the Hobson Bay Council sent eviction letters to the residents of Techno Park in May, enforcing the estate the estate's industrial zoning, despite years of accepting residential use. Lara and Annie discuss this decision and how the residents are fighting back. And you can sign the petition. Um, We will include a link in our show notes, so make sure to have a look there. After that, we'll be hearing Spike's interview with Sarah Lord from Harm Reduction Victoria's Pharmacotherapy Advocacy Mediation Support or PAMS service, where they discuss recent changes to the placement of opiate replacement therapy drugs on the Medicare schedule. This is an effort to help to reduce barriers to prescribing and access, and in the process, reduce stigma. After that, we are going to hear from artist and arts worker Priya Namana, about community, art in civic space and the thinking behind the Gertrude Street Projection Festival, which offers a confluence of projections from their artists in residence from 10 nights from July 27, alongside community projects, talks and screenings. Priya is the CEO and Artistic Director of the Centre for Projection Art, the proud presenter of the Gertrude Street Projection Festival. And then we'll hear from Danny Fadul, who joined the Human Rights Law Centre in March 2020 and focuses on the campaign to create an Australian Charter of Human Rights. Danny previously worked at GetUp, where he was a senior campaign and then their policy director, and before that worked as an industrial officer in the trade union movement. And he joins us today to talk about the Centre's campaign for an Australian Charter of Human Rights. And then last up, we have Janu, who is a queer Telugu asylum seeker from South India. 
She currently lives in Nam and connects to communities through youth work and DJing her favorite desi tracks with the spice uncompromised. She joins us today to chat about her art, music, and her next event, which is actually also at the Gertrude Street Projection Festival slash Emerge Agency live set this Thursday, 27th of July, 5.30 to 8.30. You'll listen to 3CR Thursday Breakfast. <laughs> 3CR is radical radio. Through our on-air content and community structure, we promote real change for workers' rights, gender equality, environmental action, disability justice, and on racism and First Nations sovereignty. Do you want to be part of real radical change? We need you to subscribe. It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organisation, and $300 solidarity. Call 03-9419-8377. That's 9419-8377. Or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. These are the news headlines for Thursday the 20th of July. As the voice referendum approaches, the coalition has published official yes and no campaigns pamphlets on Tuesday. In response to this, Senator Lydia Thorpe has announced the Black Sovereign Movement will be in issuing a formal complaint outlining the opposition to the constitutional adversary uh, body. This comes from the coalition's refusal to include Senator Lydia Thorpe point in the no pamphlet, unless aligned with Liberal national priorities. Ms Thorpe has criticised both the yes and no pamphlets as she reiterates that a yes to the voice may replicate ineffective advisory bodies from the past or alternatively offers a new model that First Nations people have neither debated nor agreed upon independently. Importantly, constitutional changes presented in the referendum do not reference Makarata, truth or treaty. The conservative no campaign is rife with racism that has, according to Ms. Thorpe, done more to embolden racists than they have to argue against the voice. Ms. Thorpe says, quote, The government must learn and accept the true history of this country and seize the violent war on First Nations people and country. A full statement from Black Sovereign Movement is yet to be released. Also in news headlines... Big W removes a sex education book from the shelves after staff members were abused. The sex education and consent book, aimed at adolescents, was taken off the shelves of Big W after multiple incidents of abuse directed at store workers in the past 24 hours. Welcome to Sex, co-authored by the former Dolly Doctor and adolescent health expert Dr. Melissa Kang and feminist writer Yumi Steins, is the fourth book in a series on topics such as consent and menstruation. Women's Forum Australia, a self-described think tank that focuses on anti-trans campaigning, has led the push to have the book banned from stores and libraries. Rachel Wong claims that the problem with the book was that it was teaching sex to children. 
Quote, many of the discussions around consent, the putrid effects of porn on real-world sex and keeping us all safe in moments of intimacy come back to teaching about sex and consent and starting that teaching young, the authors said. In other news, Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews has defended his government's decision to pull out of hosting the 2026 Commonwealth Games, stating the state's reputation would have taken a bigger hit if the Games had gone ahead. Mr Andrews cited ballooning costs, saying figures shows that the Games were originally budgeted at $2.6 billion, had blown to at least $6 billion. The original package included a $1 billion regional housing fund to build 1,300 new homes, a $150 million tourism and events fund, and a $60 million for regional tourism infrastructure, the ABC reports. Commonwealth Games Federation Chief Executive Katie Sadler places a blame for the cost blowouts at the Victorian government's decision to take the Games to regional centres. Athletes have also expressed frustration at the cancellation of the Games, which many view as a valuable training ground ahead of the Olympics. All other Australian states and territories ruled out taking over hosting duties, leaving a host for the 2026 Games still up in the air. And finally in headlines. The World Meteorological Organisation has warned of increased health risks and deaths caused by heat waves, with extreme temperatures reported across the Northern Hemisphere this week. On Tuesday, the city of Phoenix, Arizona, was hit with 43 degrees Celsius heat for the 19th day in a row. Meanwhile, the island of Sardinia in the Mediterranean Sea faces estimated highs of over 47 degrees Celsius, with meteorologists forecasting temperatures of over 40 degrees across several more Italian cities, including Rome. It is estimated that 61,000 people died due to extreme heat last year in Europe alone. In a briefing on the 18th of July, WMO experts warned that heat waves are set to intensify over the coming months. Experts also noted that the greatest risk to health was associated with rising overnight minimum temperatures, with increased risk of heart attacks and deaths, especially for vulnerable populations. Hans Kluge, the World Health Organization's Regional Director for Europe, has stated that the world must come to terms with the new reality of intense heat waves and other extreme weather events. This includes an urgent need for an international climate cooperation, with this summer's heat waves coinciding with wildfires raging across Greece and the Swiss Alps, devastating flooding in India and South Korea, and tropical storms hitting southern China, northern Vietnam and Hawaii. The WMO reports that June 2023 has seen the warmest global average temperatures on record for this month, with preliminary figures from July indicating that this trend will continue. These have been the headlines for Thursday the 20th of July. You're listening to 3CR on 855 AM. The state government has sold 578 hectares 
of public land to private development. They're building private public partnership model housing over public housing land and it's just not on. Housing is just massively expensive. It's never been effective in this country to rely on the market to provide decent housing for people. Rent has risen by 21%. That's median rent across the country as of January this year. As the rents keep rising, so must we. And we must stand together as a collective because this war cannot be won by the few. It will only be victorious by the many. 3CR. Stay tuned. Stay radical. Next up, we're going to hear a conversation from Saturday the 15th of July between Annie McLaughlin from Solidarity Breakfast and Lara Week, a resident at Techno Park Drive, Williamstown, who's going to talk about how the Hobson Bay Council sent eviction letters to the residents of Techno Park in May, enforcing the state's industrial zoning despite years of accepting residential use. Lara and Annie discuss this decision and how the residents are fighting back. You can sign the petition via the link in our show notes and you can also tune in to Solidarity Breakfast on Saturday mornings from 7.30 to 9am on 3CR. So Lara, can you tell my listeners a little bit about what's been going on at Techno Park Drive and where it is and what it is? Yeah, sure. Um, People have been living at Techno Park uh, in Williamstown for many years, mostly in small brick units that were originally built to house migrants and refugees in the late 1960s. Um, They're residential buildings here mostly that we live in. The area was zoned Industrial 1 in 1988, but um, Hobson's Bay City Council chose to accept residential use since then. The community here exists because the council chose to accept residential use for all that time. Um, residents here have built a life, made their homes, started families and transformed Techno Park into um, a beautiful, green and safe place. Many people have lived here for 10, 15 or 20 years and it's really a wonderful, very special community. Is it private rental or is it uh, another sort of arrangement? It's a combination. So everything here is privately owned. Um, I own my unit with my partner. Um, some people here rent. We have one block in our street that uh, the whole block is owned by one couple and they have been renting out uh, units to people who need housing for very little money for about 20 years. One of, one of my neighbours who lives there, he told me his rent is $100 a week. He's been there 14 years. Oh, that's fantastic. So obviously it is a community what happened uh, recently? What did the council do recently? Um, in May, the council sent notices to every address in the street that directed residents to cease living in their homes immediately and threatening legal action against us. The notice said um, that if you'll experience hardship, you have to make yourself known to the council individually and they'll consider up to six months extension on your eviction. Um, residents who have done that have had vastly different experiences depending on who they are. One of my neighbours, who's a lawyer, he went, they said, oh, we're really sorry, it's terrible, there's nothing we can do, but we'll give you as much time as you need, we feel like jerks, you know. And um, another one of my neighbours, who's a renter here, who lived for seven and a half years in the Hobson's Bay Caravan Park, 
which is also was also on industrial land for more than 30 years. Um, uh, when she called the council immediately, as they requested, she was told you have to get out in two weeks. And then she was told, okay, we'll give you an extension. Now you've got two months. She said it was one of the most degrading experiences of her life. So even though people privately own these properties uh, and the council has allowed people to live there as residential area, uh, why have they suddenly decided that you've all got to be evicted? How can they even do that? So the area is zoned Industrial 1. Um, that means it's for storage and manufacturing that doesn't affect the safety of people or the environment. So, for example, in our street, as well as the housing, there's some storage. There's um, a boutique coffee machine maker. There are some offices. Um, at the end of the street is the Coral Creek and wetlands. Um, so the council would say uh, that you can still use your property if you wanted to you know, use it as a storage facility, for example. Oh, I see. So what's led them to this decision at this time? We don't understand that. They had they had uh, said to people who made contact and they said in one of the letters to us that they were basically forced to do this because of the EPA and WorkSafe. Um, but uh, journalists since then have uh, gone to the EPA and WorkSafe to ask for comment and WorkSafe said they had nothing to do with it, that they didn't even hear about it until council notified them later and the EPA, I understand, has said that they don't have any record of any communication about it at all. So you you and uh, 50 people protested outside the meeting of Hobson's Bay Council last Tuesday. Can you tell me what the uh, um, effect of that uh rally had on the council? Um, yes, yeah, so there was a, uh, a council meeting on Tuesday and we'd put in a petition asking the council to withdraw the eviction notices and to commit to meeting with residents ahead of the next council meeting in a month to find a solution. They basically said no. They said people can call individually as they've been told already and the council would refer them to services. We wonder what services were in a rental crisis and a cost of living crisis. The wait list for public housing is more than 20 years. You know, people have lived here in residential buildings and safe and secure homes in a community they love for decades. So who does it benefit to displace all these people and family from their homes and, and dump them onto already overwhelmed services? Um, who... Who does it benefit in our community to have a street full of abandoned homes? Um, I would say the 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 impact that the protest had is that it really showed residents um, who care very much for one another how far that care extends into the community beyond Techno Park. The impact of the notice on the community here has been really severe. People are very distressed, you know, no one's sleeping, people aren't eating, they're really just full of fear for their future. Um, and so it's just been really meaningful to to see and feel um, for people here that we're not alone. 
it sounds very strange to me. I mean, it would, being a, uh, the sort of person I am, it makes me wonder if they have some lucrative offer for the land or something. Yeah, I mean, many people have been asking that same question. I don't, I, I just don't know. I feel like, you know, we can speak to our own experience and uh, what we do understand, but um, I just, that's kind of a mystery to all of us. Now, I mean, you've been residents there for a very long time. Uh, why mm. have your elected councillors not actually talked to you? Um, we've had one one councillor. As soon as she learned about this, her name's Daria Calendar. As soon as she learned about what was happening to us, she called. She said, "I support you a hundred percent," and uh, she's been absolutely consistent with with that support since then. Um, she tabled our petition and um, she's given us very kind of practical advice about how to, you know, how to write a strong petition, how to get it into the council. Um, yeah, so we have one, one person on council who has given us her total support. Now, that sounds interesting to me in the sense that uh, once she heard about it, uh, it sounds like to me that the... Uh, uh, when you think about a council, you've got the um, uh, elected uh, councillors, but then you've also got the, uh, the 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 commercial, uh, you know, the uh, practical mm -hmm. uh, side of it with their CEO and all the rest of it. So you got the letter from whom? Which part of the council did you get the letter from? From, from the from the planning department. From the planning department, so it's the business side of the council that's uh, done this, um, and right. and you've got the impression that the elected councillors were unaware of this until it was tabled at council. No, no, they were unaware of it when it first happened, and as soon as it happened, uh, community here made contact with the councillors. We've written to our local MP Melissa Horn, who's also the um, the Minister for Local Government. Um, uh, so, no, they, they were well aware by the time the council meeting came around. Okay, and so what did the uh, state uh, representative have to say? Um, we have a meeting with her next week. We haven't heard yet from her directly. Uh, this just seems amazing to me that they can... Um all you people are supposed to just go and find new places to live. Uh, and they're, they're saying originally it was like in two weeks you need to get out and vacate your homes. It's so bizarre. No, origin originally they said you have to leave today. Really? The, the notice said, I mean, I actually have the notice here. It's not very, um, no, the notice said you must cease residential use immediately my god it sounds like they think the ground is contaminated but people have been living there for over 30 years yeah i i, I mean they haven't said anything about the ground being contaminated i'm, I'm jumping they've to said, conclusion it just sounds like you know, one thing they've said is that they believe it's dangerous for us to live here because we are adjacent to a mobile tank farm the age has reported that those tanks have been empty for years. There are mobile sites all over Hobson's Bay with homes directly next to them. The Gem Apartments, which are a new new residential housing development in Williamstown on Point Jellibrand, 
are directly next to an active mobile terminal. They're in the same, it's what's called the inner advisory area of, of the terminal. It's exactly the same as, as we are here. That's an active site. These tanks are empty. On the other side of that tank, this tank farm here, there's a children's sport field that the council have just inve- invested more than $4 million in upgrading. So wh- where do you go? I know you go- now you're going to talk to the state uh, uh, member, uh, and obviously now the uh, residents have decided that they're going to fight back. Yeah, we're getting legal advice. We should, we're getting legal advice uh, about what to do next. Um, and uh, we're really just trying to do our very best to care for the community here because the council have been so enormously reckless. To my, to my mind, the council have endangered people's lives. They talk about their moral obligation to keep us safe. At the council meeting, and um, the mayor has repeated in press that this is really, this is why they, they practically, they could change their zoning to allow us to remain here as we have been for many years, but it would be impossible because they have to keep us safe from the empty tank farm next door. What did they think would happen when they sent 100 letters to people's homes telling them that they had to leave immediately or face legal action? But just, it doesn't, it, say, has it, it doesn't even make they, sense. No, they've, in, they've endangered people's lives. They've endangered people's lives by telling them to leave their home when many people do not have safe alternatives. There are people who, who did leave immediately, and where did they go? We don't know. They've endangered people's lives by making threats against their home and security. I, I cannot believe that since, since everything was learned from robo-debt, that any government wouldn't know that when you make threats against people's livelihoods, you threaten their lives. I'm just uh, gobsmacked. I find this absolutely amazing. Um, The uh, fact that this was built to house uh, immigrants in the 1960s and uh, were the mobile, mobile tanks there at that time and they built those flats beside there at the same time? Yes. Yes, yeah. they were. The mobile, the mobile tanks have been there, were there previously. Um, this block actually was a migrant hostel also before these uh, units were built. Um, since 1949, there's been a community of, of people living here. And I, I would hazard a guess that the uh, council hasn't done any longitudinal studies into their health to be able to come up categorically with the fact that people who live in those areas are adversely affected. There, there is no claim from the council that you're in, that you, that you are in any, that there are health consequences for looking next, living next to tanks. The, we're in what's called the inner advisory zone and the way that that is defined is it means that there's a there's a risk of one fatality that is greater than one in 10 million years <laughs> all right now the other thing that I've so heard... they're talking so so they're just talking about a, you know the risk of a major incident they're not talking about long-term health risk no one has ever said that um, people live next to all this mobile infrastructure all over Hobson's Bay the other thing that's interesting in your release is that when people have rented there or you have bought there, 
uh, none of the private uh, real estate uh, information actually told people about the industrial overlay. I don't know that that's true, that none of it did. Certainly media have found, you know, lots of examples of listings um, where it wasn't clear, you know, places that advertised with bedrooms and showers, um, you know, that obviously look residential and in many of the listings it hasn't been clear. But I think, you know, there are other things that convinced people that they could live here. Number one was that people had lived here for decades and there's a large community. Um, Councils accepted payment for registration of pets at these addresses all over the years, you know. Um, uh, The zoning says you can have a home office here without any permit, which is confusing because it also says you can't have accommodation, but I think many people interpreted that to mean accommodation like a hotel or something was not permitted because a home office is permitted and obviously a home office is an office that you live in. Yeah. Um, but I would say, you know, one of my neighbours said the other day, one of, so uh, John Link who owns this whole block that he, he lets out to a very affordable prices to many people He said the other day, you know, we never even thought about the zoning. We just knew that people lived here in this street. We knew we had an empty building and we knew people needed homes. Oh, goodness, Lara, it's so weird. It's so weird. Um, Well, good luck with your fight. And uh, what would you like people to do to to support your um, fight? Oh, thank you, Annie. We have a, we have an online petition that people can sign. We understand that that's actually really useful to show that there is, um, broad public support for us and that people are watching what's happening here. If you sign it, you'll forget our updates. Um, the website is www.change.org slash techno dash park. Um, in the last four days, we have almost 900 people have signed that petition. Um, so that would be really helpful if people can do that. And we can also keep people posted through that about um, other ways that they'll be able to help. Thanks for talking to me, Lara. Thank you so much, Annie. You've just heard an interview from Saturday the 15th of July between Annie McLaughlin from 3CR's Solidarity Breakfast Show and Lara Week, a resident at Techno Park Drive, Williamstown, who talks about how the Hobson's Bay Council sent eviction letters to the residents of Techno Park in May, enforcing the estate's industrial zoning despite years of accepting residential use. Lara and Annie discussed the, this decision and how the residents are fighting back. Now, as uh, Lara's mentioned, you can definitely go sign the residents' petition. It will be linked in our show notes. You can also search it up on change.org. And you can also tune into Solidarity Breakfast on Saturday mornings from 7.30 to 9 a.m. on 3CR. Solidarity Breakfast, your Saturday morning serving of union and working news, current events, opinion and talkback. Every Saturday, 7.30 till 9 a.m. here on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial.
And now we'll hear our wonderful Spikes interview with Sarah Lord from Harm Reduction Victoria's Pharmacotherapy Advocacy Mediation Support Service, or known as PAMS, where they discuss recent changes to the placement of opioid replacement therapy or pharmacotherapy drugs on the Medicare schedule. This is in an effort to help reduce the barriers to prescribing and access and in the process reduce stigma. On the 1st of June, there was a major change to to the cost of opioid dependency treatment drugs in Victoria, a change that will hopefully reduce the economic barrier to the uptake of opiate replacement treatment programs for folks who may be interested in reducing or managing their drug use in a way that is safe and reduces any possible harm to their health. To discuss these changes and what they mean for drug users in Victoria, we are speaking to Harm Reduction Victoria's Sarah Lord, who is the manager of PAMS, the Pharmacotherapy Advocacy Mediation and Support Service. Good morning, Sarah, and thanks for joining us on 3CR Thursday Breakfast. Can you tell us a bit about Harm Reduction Victoria and the role of PAMS? Thanks, Patrick. It's great to be here. So Harm Reduction Victoria is a community-based, non-profit, peer-led organisation. A lot of the work of Harm Reduction Victoria is sort of in the kind of education and training, health promotion kind of uh, area. Um, We have a number of different programs. For example, we've got a drug overdose prevention program. Um, We've got a DanceWise program. We do a lot of training in the uh, prevention of bloodborne viruses such as hepatitis C and HIV. And we have a, we also do a magazine called WAC magazine, um, which is circulated amongst our members and for people who inject and use um, predominantly illicit drugs. And then we've got the PAM service, which as you said is pharmacotherapy advocacy, mediation and support service, PAMS. And PAMS is a a statewide service. We're funded by the Victorian Department of Health. And we work on sort of any pharmacotherapy client-related issue. So I guess our overall goals are, you know, people who are on a pharmacotherapy program. When I say pharmacotherapy, I mean like the methadone program, the suboxone, and more recently, the long-acting injectable buprenorphine program. Sometimes people who are receiving those sorts of treatments come across a, a, a problem that usually needs to be resolved effectively and very efficiently so that the person doesn't have to miss their, their next dose or number of doses or uh, their next injection. So those problems often relate to the service providers, which are prescribers and, and and pharmacists, so we um, support the, the, the consumer or the person receiving treatment and uh, resolve the problem as quickly as we can and as, and as efficiently as we can. The other thing that we do is we support people to actually access treatment, so somebody might um, be looking at restarting pharmacotherapy after maybe being out of treatment for a period of time, we support them to restart or in some instances, to start for the first time. So we work with people who are opioid dependent predominantly, or only opioid dependent. So, yeah. I can personally testify that PAMS is an important advocacy organisation. Can you give us an insight into its work and how the delivery of pharmacotherapy programs has evolved over the years? 
Um, yes. So, okay. So my role at PAM is I'm the uh, program manager. So we've got, um, I think there's five of us all together. Um, and most of all, all of us work on the phone. So PAMs operate via a 1-800 number. So people call in. Um, either we answer the phone if we're not on the phone or they leave a message if we are on the phone. And um, so we, we speak to people about, you know, what the issues are, what their concerns are. We often get people's consent to speak to a pharmacist or a prescriber or to both. Um, we also provide lots of information and support and consumer sort of resources on pharmacotherapy. But we work with people sort of where they're at and we um, address the issues that they are. Uh, sometimes people just ring because they want information, but other times people might be moving from one side of Victoria to another. They might need a new prescriber or a new pharmacy or both. Sometimes people might contact us because they're, they're not happy with the prescriber or the, and or the pharmacist that they've got and they're wanting a new one. Um, other times people want information, for example, if they're travelling overseas and they're on a pharmacotherapy program, you know, what do they what do they need to have to, to travel? How do they safely travel with um, Schedule 8 controlled drugs and uh, that sort of thing? So we, we deal, the issues that we deal with are, are really, really, really varied and it's, it's an amazing job because you never know kind of who you're going to meet or what you're going to be dealing with on any given day. Um, so part of my role is to, to work directly with um, our service users, but another part of my role is to, I guess, manage the service, um, support the other staff that are working on the funds and working with pharmacotherapy consumers. And then another part of my role is around systemic advocacy, and that's really taking the issues that people are presenting uh, to us and then advocating for change at a more of a systems kind of level. So one of the one of the changes that we've been advocating for, oh, for a, to be honest, a good sort of twenty to thirty years in reality, is the cost of pharmacotherapy. So prior to this uh, new change that has come about, um, to be on a methadone or a suboxone program cost the service, the consumer, about between $30 and $40 sometimes, in, and this is just in Victoria, it would cost different amounts at different places, in different states and territories, that is, sorry, um, but it would cost sort of between $30 and $40. So for people who were receiving a Centrelink benefit, what that meant was that people were actually paying roughly between 11 to 15% of their entire income on one medication, and that is a medication that is declared as an essential medicine by the World Health Organization, and um, it's a medicine that you have to have, so you can't just decide, oh, look, I won't, I won't have that this month. You have to have it, and it has to be in most cases, certainly for methadone and suboxone, has to be dispensed every single day, so every 24 hours you need a dose. And each dose would cost, well, you know, roughly, roughly $5 a day, and I guess in, you know, in fairness to the pharmacists who are dispensing um, pharmacotherapy, the sort of $5 a day cost, where it really came from, um, when it was originally only methadone that was available, when methadone um, first 
first became available, it was only available through public hospitals. And public hospitals don't don't charge any dispensing fee. So the program was very different then. It was run, I think, from about three um, public hospitals. It was a very different sort of program back then to what it was, what it is now. Um, It was quite punitive. There was a lot of urine drug screening. If any other opioids were were found in in any drug urine screen, then the dose would be reduced. Um, If people didn't stop using other illicit drugs, they were reduced off the methadone. And it was it was difficult to access. It was a real sort of last last resort kind of option. And then what happened is when um, there was a number of concerns about HIV and HIV sort of being spread amongst the general population, and obviously you know HIV is blood to blood transmission, as is hepatitis C. Um, the Victorian government decided to expand pharmacotherapy so that it was going to be a lot more accessible to a lot more people. And Victoria actually adopted a a community model of pharmacotherapy service delivery. So that meant people could go to a general practitioner and get a script for then methadone and later on um, buprenorphine. um, And then they would go to a community pharmacy where they would get their uh, dose. So there's, there's an element of, of supervised dosing, so that's a dose that has to be taken in the pharmacy. And then, you know, once people are, are stable and have been on treatment for a certain amount of time, people become eligible for what they call takeaways or take-home doses that, are, that don't have to be consumed in the pharmacy. So, um, yeah, so that's, I, I guess... Um, yeah, a bit about the sort of what the... So what happened on the 1st of July was... And this kind of took us a little bit by surprise. We weren't quite expecting it to happen when it did. Um, but we'd been lobbying for that $5 a day cost to be removed. Um, like pretty much any other medication is, I think, $7... If you've got a healthcare card, $7.30 for a 28-day supply. But... Not pharmacotherapy, no, that used to be $140, $130, $140. And it was just this huge cost um, to the point that the, our service PAMs, on occasion, the only way we could keep somebody getting that next dose or few doses was actually to provide a small amount of financial assistance. Um, if people don't have their dose of methadone or suboxone, what happens is they go into opioid withdrawal, which is excruciating and it's it's that is definitely not part of the 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 treatment so um a number of different groups over many years have been looking at how can we make this this medicine uh, more equitable with um other medicines um so as i said everything else is about seven dollars thirty for a 28 day supply if you've got a healthcare card and $30 for a 28-day supply with no healthcare card, so for people who are employed and not receiving a central link benefit. Um, so this is this is the change that has um, come about, and it is just fantastic and so welcomed, and it really makes pharmacotherapy equitable 
with with other other medicines. So it's it's just brilliant. Struggling for equality and the healthcare rights of marginalised groups has always been challenging. Who has jurisdiction over the PBS? Yes, so I mean many different groups have been lobbying and uh, advocating for these changes to come through, but it was a co- it's the Commonwealth government through the Pharmaceutical Benefits Scheme and the Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee, PBAC, that actually, like, made this happen. So it was a a decision that was passed down with the Commonwealth budget that I think came... I think it was announced in May and then uh, came through on the 1st of July, 2023. Can individual pharmacies opt out of the new payment structure, Sarah? Yeah, no, they cannot. No, they cannot. Um, so pharmacies, if, if a pharmacy is offering pharmacotherapy, so a community pharmacy does not have to dispense pharmacotherapy. They need to be approved uh, as a pharmacotherapy dosing point or pharmacotherapy dispensing pharmacy. They need to be a community pharmacy with a proper PBS number to be able to dispense a, a drug that is on the, on the PBS. Um, but no, they cannot opt out. So if they're offering pharmacotherapy, so methadone and suboxone and a little bit further down the track, the long-acting injectable buprenorphine, um, I think after uh, 1st of December, I think that comes through, um, then it has to be offered at uh, these prices. So there are no additional charges that can be added on. So if you have a healthcare card and you're on the methadone program, you will not pay any more than $7.30 every 28 days. So the way that the the medicine is dispensed is slightly different. The way that the doctor actually writes the prescription is is also different. So previously, previous to the 1st of July, a pharmacotherapy prescriber, so the, the doctor writing the prescription, would write a script for, you know, this date to that date. And it could, in fact, um, very rarely, but it could, in fact, be as long as six months. Most of the scripts were for a month uh, and, in some cases, up to three months. Now scripts can have to be written in allotments of 28 days, so they can be written for 28 days plus a maximum of two repeats. And each repeat also goes for 28 days. So the idea is that the person who's receiving the treatment pays with a healthcare card $7.30 every 28 days. So the, the cost is like it's, it's almost not comparable to what it was and it is absolutely brilliant. People will be able to, you know, afford their rent, feed their kids, feed themselves. You know, it, this is just the most awesome thing that could have happened. What advice would you give to a listener who has visited their local pharmacy this morning for their dose and where these changes haven't been discussed? Yeah, well, look, I think that's a really good question. Um, people can, can definitely contact our service, PAMS, which, um, and we can be reached on 1-800-443-844. Now, if you ring our number and you get a voicemail, please leave us a message with a name and a number that we can reach you on and then we'll call back. And when we call back, we'll call from a mobile number that will be displayed on your on your phone. But we will be able to uh, address it. 
we can talk to you, we can talk to your pharmacist, only with your permission, of course, and uh, we can work it out. But if you're receiving methadone or buprenorphine, Spoxone, for example, at a community pharmacy and you are not being charged the new rate, which is 28-day supply, $7.30, or up to $30 for 28 days if you do not have a healthcare card, and if you contact our service, we'll be able to uh, sort it out for you because it's it's actually not okay for a pharmacist to charge anything else than those those new fees. If people don't have a phone, is there any other way that they, that they can get in contact with PAMS? Yeah, that can be a little bit difficult, I will admit. But if you go to a phone box. Um, you can ring us where the 1800 number is a free call. Um, if you keep ringing, you probably will eventually get through. It's just that if we're on the phone, the phone will go to, to message bank. That is what it makes it difficult. Or if you're with a friend and they're happy for you to leave their phone number, we can call back on your friend's phone. If it's a situation like that and you're only going to be with your friend for a certain amount of time, please let us know that's the situation in the message. But... Um, yeah, look, there are there are a, num- a number of ways. If people are interested in finding out more about Harm Reduction Victoria or want to become a member, what is the best way for them to get in touch? Sure. So Harm Reduction Victoria has got a uh, website, which I think is www.hrvic.org.au. Um, we're also a membership based organisation so if people would like to join up as an individual member that's uh, free and we can mail out our WAC magazine if you'd like to receive that and also as a member you get uh, voting rights to attend our annual general meeting and vote or even if you wanted to nominate for a position on the board um, so we're a, we're a completely sort of um, you know, we're a government-funded organisation, but we're a membership-based uh, organisation, and we are a non-profit organisation as well. But we'd we'd love people to be involved. Um, there's a number of ways to get involved. So if you uh, ring us or ring Pam's on a one eight hundred number, we can certainly hook you up with any of the other uh, harm reduction services and support uh, staff. So yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Thanks so much for coming on to 3CR Thursday Breakfast, Sarah. These changes are vital to the health and well-being of many people in our community and I'd just like to thank you for the support that PAMS provides. Thanks, Patrick. It's been really great to be here. Thank you so much. You've just heard Spike's interview with Sarah Lord from Harm Reduction Victoria's PAM Service or Pharmacotherapy Advocacy Mediation Support where they discussed the recent changes to the placement of opioid replacement therapy drugs on the Medicare schedule. This is an effort to reduce barriers to prescribing and access, and in the process, reduce stigma. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. It is currently 7.50. From a private life so public, as the tabloids caught your tears, being photographed How sad. How tragic. But it doesn't have to be that way on the Burning Vinyl Alternative Music Program. Burning Vinyl, Fridays, 2 till 4pm, on 3CR.
For 10 nights from July 27, the Gertrude Street Projection Festival offers a confluence of projections from their artists in residence alongside community projects, talks and screenings. Next up, we will speak to artist and arts worker Priya Namana about community, art in civic space and the thinking behind the festival. Good morning, Priya. Welcome to Thursday Breakfast. Thank you so much for having me, Lila. Yeah, thank you for joining us. So this year's Gertrude Street Projection Festival, called Confluence, is presented by the Centre for Projection Art, where you are CEO and Artistic Director. Could you speak to the thinking behind the title? And yeah, I was wondering if it was something that informed the program from the start or whether it emerged in conversation with the program and the work. Yeah, um, great way to start with the name. Um, the program this year is a little bit different um, in comparison to last year, which was my first uh, festival as a festival director, uh, where we had a curatorial rationale that the artists were responding to um, that came from an external curator. Um, this year, I was trying to think through how we can bring together a, a, a a confluence, I suppose, of many different practices under this umbrella of the Gertrude Street Projection Festival, which becomes a container for this, these expressions. So the name very much emerged in conversation with the program and confluence. Um, I was sort of ruminating on that, uh, the meaning of the word, which is essentially that merging of two forces in form of an elemental sort of a river and water and what happens in that third space. So really thinking about that, it just made sense that um, we called it Confluence this year as it was uh, coming together of so many different um, uh, artists and community projects and performers and live activations. Yeah, I think that's a really beautiful way to frame um, all these different things coming together. Thanks for uh, giving us some background on that. Um, So a lot of these works will be shown in public space or civic space. Now, this kind of space on stolen land can be a site of contested power and meanings. So would you be able to tell us what exactly is civic space and how do you think the artists in Confluence, the festival, challenge or reframe its functions? Mm. Thanks, Lila. It's a really good question to reflect on, um, especially as you say, um, on stolen land, uh, civic space, is such a contested, um, has such contested understandings. Um, I can only speak to my understanding of what a civic space is. And I think uh, from the festival perspective, especially, um, it is an extension of the community. Um, and when they work well, I guess they serve as a stage for our public lives. Um, and in, in that setting, celebrations are held where social and um, economic exchanges take place, where um, familiar faces and friends run into each other, uh, cultures can mix, um, and other activities can take place. Um, I was thinking about this a little bit more and I, thinking through Fred Moton's understanding of the city's um, near presence and how it distinguishes it's from a multiplicity of independent houses. You know, like the mm. the whole where it's not 
merely consisting of its parts. It's sort of kind of like an independent organism that just breeds when everyone comes together. That's when it comes alive. Yeah, thank uh, you. Oh, yeah, sorry. Oh, sorry, I was just going to say, I guess in, in response to how the artists are challenging or reframing its, its functions, um, I think individually each artist is reframing its function through the critical inquiries in each of their works um, and creating these points of reflection that they offer through encountering their works in these public spaces. Um, and the curious minds of the audiences who encounter them intentionally or just sort of um, happenstance, you know, stumble across them, will be able to follow through and enter each of these worlds of these artists and their thinking um, that have such gentle and playful ways to invite radical thinking. Yeah, I really like the way that the festival kind of incorporates ideas of projection and also reflection as two things that are kind of um, dependent on each other. I was wondering, just expanding on that kind of thinking, to you, what is most compelling about projection as a point of connection or as a point of confluence between artist and audience? Yeah, um, I guess projection as a material, um, we have been at the at the centre sort of investigating and interrogating and reflecting critically about what projection art is and thinking about it as material um, of light that reveals an image. And for me, that's really important um, and a poetic understanding of uh, the materiality of projection. So um, I guess as a point of confluence, um, using this, it lends itself to uh, a public space really well. And the happenstance quality created by the scale of it and the impact it has um, where you can't, um, it creates intimacies to its scale as well and you can encounter it so easily. It creates these accessible points into the artworks, um, which I think is um, it, its most compelling quality. Yeah, thank you. I think I really would love to hear a little bit more about one particular artwork. Um, would you be able to give us maybe a really short rundown of one artwork that challenges Western dichotomies of the viewed and the viewer in the festival? Yeah, um, this is a tough one because I feel like there are so many works in the festival that are doing this really well in their own ways. Mm. Um, but um, let's maybe focus on Leitu, Benici and Jamali Bowden's collaboration, which is um, a work that's called Letters at Play. Um, it's a moving image animation, and um, the way they explain it, it's, their work is sort of anchored in um, a self-aware challenge to simplify these narratives through language. Um, and they're looking at English as a dominant language and um, what happens to letters and deconstructing letters and punctuation in the classroom. Um, and the playground and the relationship between the two. So they've created this really playful work with letters that is completely fractured and presented in a way where we're sort of deconstructing English as a language and it's uh, the meaning it creates in culture. Thank you so much, Priya. Uh, I'm really a fan of Leitu Bonici's work and I would encourage anyone to go and see it. Where was that one showing, just for our audience? 
That is so. Um, if you head towards Charcoal Lane, it is showing in the laneway between Charcoal Lane and the Jason Building oh, okay. on, the, on the wall above. Yeah, thank you. Well, we'll include all the details in our show notes. Um, I'm sure we could talk all morning, but we have to wrap it up there. Um, thank you so much for joining us this morning, Priya. And yeah, I hope to see you at the festival. Thanks so much, Lila. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We just heard from Priya Namana, who is the CEO and Artistic Director for the Centre for Projection Art, the proud presenters of the Gertrude Street Projection Festival. And you can catch the Gertrude Street Projection Festival for 10 nights from the 27th of July. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Focus on Myanmar, art, music and resistance. Join Past the Mic Media at Black Spark on Wednesday the 26th of July for a presentation about art, music and resistance since the February 2021 military coup of Myanmar. Featuring a statement and music from Chaw Chaw and Myanmar punk band The Rebel Riot, the photography of 2023 World Press Photo Award winner Mal Kam Wah, and a presentation and Q&A with Myanmar photographer Mako Nang. Tickets are on a sliding scale via Humanitics. As always, no one turned away. More details are available on the Black Spark event page. Focus on Myanmar. Art, music and resistance. 5.30pm, Wednesday the 26th of July at Black Spark. Hosted by Pastor Mike Media, a 3CR supporter. Left after breakfast. 38 years of information, insights, analysis and opinion. Just plain old common sense, really. 8.30am on Fridays. And now we will hear from Danny Fadul, who joined the Human Rights Law Centre in March 2020 and focuses on the campaign to create an Australian Human Rights Charter. Danny uh, previously worked at GetUp, where he was a senior campaigner and then their political director, and before that worked as an industrial officer in the trade union movement. He joins us today to talk about the centre's campaign for an Australian Charter of Human Rights. Thanks so much for joining us here today, Danny. Hi, Danny, can you hear me? Yep, sure can. Oh, great. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Great to be here. Yep, great to have you. Um, would you mind telling our listeners more about the recent submission to the parliamentary inquiry into the Australian human rights framework and why this is such an important opportunity for human rights? Yeah, because um, what happened is that the Federal Attorney General, Mark Dreyfus, he asked the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Human Rights to hold an inquiry into a national human rights framework and if a human rights charter should be part of that new framework. And this is a once-in-a-decade opportunity because the last time um, the, the human rights framework was considered was in 2010. So the Charter of Rights campaign, that's a coalition of 90 organisations across civil society, made a submission calling for the inquiry to recommend a human rights charter be part of that framework because that would place enforceable human rights standards at the heart of our laws that improves government decisions and allows people to take action when their rights are violated. 
Yeah, I think that's such an important point. And I think one thing that I'm really curious about is, you know, obviously it's a really important opportunity and the Australian Human Rights Charter would be like national, but we do already have like federal and state-based anti-discrimination laws. What does the charter um, like help support? Because I think we're the only Western liberal democracy that doesn't have a national charter like this. You're absolutely right when you say that's the case. Um, but to get to your broader point, um, anti-discrimination laws are essential, but they're just not enough. And the reason why is mm. because they stop negative things being done to you on the basis of things like your race, age, disability, sex or sexual orientation. But they don't push for things that we should have. Yeah. Whereas a charter enshrines things everyone should have, like a positive right to education, a right to health care and a right to housing. A charter puts forward those values and rights that we as people should all have and enjoy. Um, and that's what you get with the Charter, and it's a pity that we are the only Western liberal democracy not to have a Charter or a similar law in operation. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point because you've stated that, yeah, we do have these laws in place, but having a Charter states that we can have things and we can campaign and advocate for them. And, you know, from my understanding, you've been working on this for, you know, a few years now. Um, And I guess for the recent i feel like with the human rights in you know so-called australia there has been you know recent history we have gross human rights violations such as robo debt the covid-19 travel ban on indians several world commissions into disability mental health death in custody family violence there is so much systemic information available on how human rights are violated you know and i think what change does a charter actually bring to people and how does it actually change what's already happening because we have so much information already yeah well, that's a really good question because a charter of human rights will put the values and freedoms we all share at the heart of our laws and policies that's what it will do it provides those enforceable human rights standards that have been missing in so many of those examples you just listed um, and the way it works is it means you've got better government decisions at the start but also when people's rights are violated, it can actually take action to, to get justice. Um, because time is short, I'll only go through a couple of examples of what you just said. To just That's okay, Danny. You can, we have a bit, of, um, a bit of time so we can talk through some of those. Yeah, no problems at all. Um, um, so I'll go through uh, the Royal Commissions into Aged Care and Disability. Both highlighted systemic neglect and abuses faced by way too many older persons and people with disability. Both highlighted the need for enforceable human rights standards like but whilst the Disability Royal Commission is still underway, um, the Aged Care Royal Commission uh, finalised its report. The first two recommendations they made were enforceable rights to health care and dignified treatment for older persons in aged care facilities. So imagine if there are enforceable human rights standards of the Charter from the beginning. Better aged care policies and services, because alongside cost and other factors, is the human rights of people in aged care when they're actually coming up with those services and delivering those services. Yep. But also, older persons not receiving that dignified treatment or the health care they need could take action because they have an enforceable right that they can, they can go with. Now, multiply that benefit to other parts of our community, to those and other rights, like the right to education and housing, because the great thing about a Charter of Rights is it benefits everyone. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, you've given like there's so many examples and you've clearly been you know really ingrained in this for a few years it's like your campaign what's kind of been some of the challenges that have come up when you are trying to advocate for this well it's um a campaign of like a whole bunch of organizations like i said uh, the charter campaign is like made up of 90 uh, organizations across civil society but uh, there are some challenges to give you one example some some listeners may not be aware that charters of rights currently operate in Victoria, Queensland and the ACT. And in those states and territory, uh, they've made a difference, albeit a quiet difference. 
So that's why we compiled 101 examples of the difference that those state and territory charters are making at charterofrights.org.au forward slash 101 cases because they include examples like in Queensland, a domestic violence survivor wasn't evicted from public housing due to breaches by their ex-partner. In ACT, their Human Rights Act ensured children seeking asylum were not charged upfront fees to attend public schools. And in Victoria, the Victoria Charter was used to ensure a woman over the age of 50 was able to receive urgent medical treatment that saved the use of her hand. Um, so those sorts of examples are amazing, but they're not well known. So part of our challenge is making sure we get the word out to as many people as possible because it's only through people across the community calling for one that will ensure this will be on the political agenda and become law. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, from what I'm hearing, so much of it is about collaboration and awareness. But I think it's also really great that, as you said, there are state-based charters that provide examples um, and, you know, collating them and, and kind of learning from them to create a charter of, you know, Australian human rights, I think is so incredibly important. Um, and I know that, you know, we have, you've mentioned examples from like states and, uh, you know, there are other examples from overseas, but what would it look like kind of in practice to actually use the charter if someone's human rights were violated? Well, I think those examples at the state and territory level um, give a give a, a flavour of how they can um, be done. So to give an example from um, the ACT, um, when it was revealed that um, children uh, seeking asylum would be charged upfront fees to attend public schools, it was the fact that there was a right to education in the ACT Human Rights Act that meant that the ACT Human Rights Commission, as well as... Um, advocates for people seeking asylum in the ACT were able to make representations to the ACT Department of Education, which led to the ACT Department of Education changing their, uh, their decision. And as a result, children seeking asylum weren't charged upfront uh, fees to attend public education uh, anymore. So that's the sort of uh, concrete way that, that having an enforceable human right makes a difference. Better decisions at the start by government. And if the government does get it wrong, you have the ability to take action uh, when that right's not being respected. Um, to give an overseas example, in South Africa, the South African government um, uh, decided not to uh, distribute uh, medication that would help prevent HIV transmission um, amongst pregnant mothers. Um, it was using the right to health uh, in South Africa's laws uh, and in court cases in that, case, in that situation that led to the South African government um, uh, delivering that HIV medication, getting rolled out across South Africa, which led to countless uh, uh, people in South Africa not um, contracting HIV uh, as a consequence of that. So that's the power of the Charter and the benefits that everyone in the community is missing out on as long as it isn't one in our laws. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, from the examples that you've given, it's shown that it can be a really, really powerful tool um, and really set really important precedent that, you know, can inform other charters, other legislation. Um, and then also, I am curious to know that, you know, we know that there's the parliamentary inquiry. You've been working and a lot of organisations have also collaborated on this. But what kind of are the next steps to get the charter in um, in place and also what can our listeners maybe do to support? Well, I think the important thing is making sure that this inquiry uh, hears all the evidence that shows the benefits that charters of human rights provide for everyone across the community uh, because once they hear that evidence, once they hear the sort of benefits uh, that a charter provides, um, um, It'll, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll drive them towards providing that recommendation to government that they should be implementing a charter of human rights nationwide. And that requires all of us to be speaking up and, and calling for one. And the best, best way you can do that, as well as learn more about the benefits of a charter of human rights, is um, at the campaign website, which is charterofrights.org.au. 
Amazing. Yeah, we'll definitely link that in the show notes too. Um, and also, where can we, what kind of other work does like the Human Rights Law Centre do if other people are interested in the more broader spectrum of um, the centre? Well, um, uh, the Human Rights Law Centre is quite busy um, uh, <laughs> because we've got quite a few things that we're engaged in, whether it's uh, the rights of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, peoples, um, whether it's uh, the rights of people seeking asylum uh, and migrants. Uh, we're also involved in issues relating to democratic freedoms, ensuring that we have greater democratic uh, integrity in our system, as well as protecting uh, whistleblowers uh, from, uh, from retribution for speaking up in the public interest or journalists for reporting what whistleblowers uh, uh, are speaking up about and reporting in the public interest. Uh, we're even uh, involved in um, actions and activities about climate justice, uh, because obviously human rights are important, uh, but you need a safe and livable planet um, to enjoy those human rights on. Uh, we're involved in all of those things and more, and you can find out more about what the Human Rights Law Centre is up to at uh, www.hrlc.org.au. Amazing. Thank you so much, Daddy. This was an incredibly insightful uh, interview and you're, you clearly are very well versed in this and it's really important to bring it to the forefront and we will make sure to include the links that you mentioned in our show notes when the podcast is up to. But thank you so much for you know coming on the show, bringing awareness to this topic and yeah, I hope you have a really lovely day. Thank you. Great to be here. Bye. So you've just heard from Danny Fadul, who joined the Human Rights Law Centre in March 2020 and focuses on the campaign to create an Australian Charter of Human Rights. You can also learn more about the Australian Human Rights Charter um, in the links that we will post in our show notes, but also by looking up uh, Human Rights Law Centre as well. So thank you so much. For our very lucky last interview, we have Janu, who is a queer Telugu asylum seeker from South India. She currently lives in Nam and connects to the community through youth work and DJing her favourite desi tracks with the spice uncompromised. She joins us today to chat about her art, music and her next event, also at the Gertrude Street Projection Festival, um, ex-emerge agency live set this Thursday, 27th of July at 5.30. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Janu. Hello, thank you so much for having me. What an honour. <laughs> um, 
yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show. I I think my first question, I have so many questions to ask you, but I just kind of want to know, tell our listeners a little bit more about you. What do you do? What are you up to? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to speak more about myself every day. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Hello, sweet listeners. My name is Janu or Ms. Janiman. Um, I go by Shia Bernans and live on Unbeated Warranty, what we're in country and live as an asylum seeker here in so-called Australia. Um, I'm a DJ sometimes, but a doll full-time. Um, I moved to NAM a few years ago to do a biomedical science degree, but somehow I ended up now transitioning into living as a mixed-media artist, working in community work, um, and DJing South Asian music on the side, um, and running a booking agency with three other amazing people um, at the Yara Youth Center through a freezer program. Um, hoping to platform emerging artists from marginalized backgrounds. <laughs> oh, wow, that's, and I do <laughs> yeah, that's so amazing. You do it so much, and I think what I really admire about you is that you are just constantly doing a lot, but also you're bringing yourself to it. You're always ready to collaborate and share, and I think that's really inspiring. And I think sometimes that's quite rare in some some artists, you know. Um, yeah, and I think. You, I want to touch on the DJing bit a little bit because you've recently taken up DJing. You've been absolutely killing it ever since. <laughs> um, can we start off with like what kind of music you play and where you kind of find more of your hidden attracts? Because some of them can be, you know, a bit obscure. Mm. Oh, yeah. Um, I love answering this question and just going DJ dog <laughs> Um And I'll just like. Absolutely sweet of you to say all that, by the way. Thank you. I'm listening through the radio. <laughs> um, yeah, I play, um, I started DJing because I really wanted to, um, like, uh, make, like, they see and, like, South Asian tracks more popular and just bring to platform, like, things that I grew up with and all the catchy, like, soap opera music or soap opera intros, the, like, weird beats that go into making things more interesting and just, like, uh, the South Asian spice. Um, and yeah, that's been really fun to do so. Uh, and it's been really cool to like just perceive people who also don't like understand the language but still are so open to taking up, uh, that space and to like dance and have a lovely time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, um, mm-hmm. it's so clear that you love creativity and you love music and art and I think it just shines from you and I know that also your performances are always such a celebration but a really authentic celebration of all parts of you and your culture and I'm curious like how do you make sure that your performances still really embody you and not just like what others might want from you? Mm, uh, absolutely. Um, I think like doing like with uh, South Asian music has been such an important thing for me as like an asylum seeker wanting to connect back to culture. That's been almost like this sacred thing of me only wanting to like do what I wanted to do, <laughs> uh, which has made it a bit hard to get gigs, but it's still, uh, I do it my way and it's been lovely so far. Um, and I think it's been like with that confidence that people will take my music regardless of if they like understand the lyrics or something. Um, and they'll, I just need to make them dance. And that's my objective for the night. So it's really fun to play with that and also explore like, uh, like people with South Asian heritage that I didn't know. But now I'm like really proud to like play, um, like Charlie XCX or uh, one of the TLC members who's like Daisy. And I'm like, ooh, yeah, I'm just gonna. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's yeah. some of that spice uncompromised that we had about earlier. Um, I guess also, you know, when you say that you also have been like working with youth and you've been, you know, DJing at some youth events, um, mm. what's it by, what's it been like to kind of, you know, step into a space of young people as well? A young person yourself mm. too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I feel like it's been so interesting because, um, like, I think, Having like the type of music that I play, um, whether that be like instrumentals of the sitar or like tabla, um, and traditional instruments, um, and like showing that off and showcasing it to younger people who like would have otherwise never heard it. That's been really special. Um, I had like, like kids come up to me and ask me what that one instrument was or like what that one word meant. And it's been so sweet to like just nerd out and be appreciated in that sense. Um, and, yeah, now kids like know a few words in Hindi and Telugu, and I'm just like, that's so cool, uh, and just makes me really happy. Um, yeah, yeah, that is really cool and very sweet. Um, and also with your your performances, I guess in you know they're quite diverse. In you know some settings, maybe you'll play a club night, sometimes you'll play a youth mm-hmm. event. Um, but I guess in a broader sense, when you're performing, what what mm-hmm. kind of stuff do you want the audience to really feel? Mm, um, I feel like, uh, I feel like my sets are very much like a journey of like this narrative of like a typical three hour long South Asian film that kind of goes everywhere, but also just like leaves you wanting more. Um, and I really love playing with that chaos of, um, just intense spice and then like long full, just yearning for love and then just like dancing. Um, <laughs> and playing everything that I can bring into it uh, without really considering BPM or any of the usual, I feel like, DJing rules. And I think that's been really fun to explore with people in different spaces. Yeah, I think that's really beautiful. Like, screw the DJ rules <laughs> and just take people on a journey, like a beautiful Bollywood movie, absolute chaos, um, but in the, the best way. I think you play with narrative really well as well. And lastly... Can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, what you have coming up next and the event that you're playing at, and how can we show up? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, you can catch me next, and along with other incredible people, at the Gertrude opening of the Gertrude Street uh, Projection Festival in Collingwood Yards uh, from 5.30 to 8.30. Um, me, I'm, um, me and a couple of other uh, lovely people are, uh, who are running this booking agency called EDOC Merge or Emerge are having a lineup of incredible performers, um, starting off with Hope, Make Peace, uh, Titus, um, Cooper, uh, Safe, and Henry Solly as our headliner. Um, and I'll be DJing in the middle and supporting the acts um, and just showing up for our lovely talents that day. Um, uh, yeah, I'm incredibly excited for that and just can't wait to have that platform and have to like, showcase all these lovely people. Um, and I'll be possibly playing at Miscellaneous soon, which I'm really excited for later in, the, later in August. Um, so follow me on Instagram if you'd like to see more of that. <laughs> yes, amazing. Thank you so much. We um, will definitely link your Instagram in the show notes as well as the link to the um, opening night of the Gertrude Street Projection Festival. And nicely really ties in because we also spoke to someone earlier about Gertrude Street Projection Festival. So it really seems like the place to be. Mm, it's going to have some incredible art and me, so you 
better come down. <laughs> yeah, the most special, absolutely, definitely come on down, see Janu, <laughs> see her absolutely killing it. But thank you so much again for coming on the show and waking up early <laughs> and can't wait to, you know, listen to the sweet, sweet tunes that you bestow on our ears. Yes, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. I think you've been at. No worries. Bye, Johnny. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Have you heard it on the news? About the special proof thing? Evil men with racist views Spread it all across the land they're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Fasaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. Panoply, panorama, panpipe, pansy, aha, pansexual, knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope... Only on 3CR 855 AM digital and 3cr.org.au. Hello, hello. It is currently 8.24 p.m. and we actually have extra on the <laughs> Not <laughs> yet, not yet. They <laughs> looked at me and they were like, not PM. Um, it is AM, as uh, I'm sure some of you are going into work or going into your day. And we actually have a little bit of time left, so we might do a rundown of what we spoke about. Uh, Leela, do you want to kick it off? Yeah. So first up, we heard a wonderful conversation from Saturday the 15th of July between Annie McLaughlin from Solidarity Breakfast and Lara Week, who is a resident at Techno Park Drive, Williamstown. Now, the residents of Techno Park Drive recently received letters of eviction enforcing the state's, the estate's industrial zoning despite years of accepting residential use. Lara and Annie discussed this decision and how the resident, the residents are fighting back. And you can sign that petition, which acquired, I think, 900 signatures in the first four days. You can sign that same petition, uh, via the link on our show notes. And you can also tune in to the full episodes of Solidarity Breakfast on Saturday mornings between 7.30 and 9am on 3CR. And then we heard Spike's interview with Sarah Lord from Harm Reduction Victoria's PAM service. So that's a pharmacotherapy advocacy mediation support. And they discussed recent changes to the placement of opioid replacement therapy drugs on the Medicare schedule. Now, this has been an effort to reduce barriers to prescribing and access and in a process to reduce stigma. We know that stigma occurs in health settings, you know, particularly for people who use drugs and, you know, 
fiber therapy is no different and making sure that, you know, it is more accessible and they have longer supplies so people don't have to go into um, pharmacies or chemists every single day. This is an unbelievably life-saving interview um, and, and change to the schedule. So definitely listen back to that one. Yeah, that is a great, really important listen. Um, and then for 10 nights from July 27, coming up just around the corner, <laughs> the Gertrude Street Projection Festival will offer a confluence of projections from their artists in residence alongside community projects, talks and screenings. And this morning we heard from CEO and Artistic Director for the Centre of Projection Art, uh, Priya Namana and the Centre for Projection Art are proud presenters of the Gertrude Street Festival. And then we heard from Danny Fadul, who joined the Human Rights Law Centre in March 2020 and focuses on the campaign to create an Australian Charter of Human Rights. So we spoke about the Australian Charter of Human Rights, which is a collaboration with you know over 90 organisations, and it's focusing on making sure that we you know have a right to ask for the things that we want, and there's already state-based and overseas examples, so it's really about getting it into place. So you can learn more about that at the Australian Charter of Human Rights. And finally, we heard from Janu, who is a queer Telugu asylum seeker from South India. She currently lives in Nam and connects to community through youth work and DJing her favourite Desi tracks with the Spice Uncompromised. I just want to say that a million more times and take that through my life as a um, something to live by. Anyway, she joined us today in a wonderful interview between... Uh, Inez and herself to chat about art, music and her next event, Gertrude Street Projection Festival and Emerge Agency, which will be a live set on Thursday, the 27th of July. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you so much. We'll catch you next time. Our breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.